and welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Today is the first of our 11 days of terror, spooky, Halloween extravaganza. <laughs> As you can tell, we put a lot of thought into that name. Yep, yep, yep. We have 11 days of content for you guys in the run-up to Halloween, which we're very excited about. Uh, today, we're taking on our first ever Russian case. With the case of uh, Andre Romanovic Chikatilo. Because we've offended most of English-speaking world at the moment <laughs> by now, uh, so we're moving on to the rest of you. You knew it was coming eventually. Yeah. I mean, that being said, we haven't, where haven't we offended you? We haven't been to South Africa yet. Not yet. There's time. There's time. So, yeah. We're, we're moving on to the rest of the world now. Known as the Butcher of Rostov, the Forest Strip Killer, the Red Ripper, and the Rostov Ripper, Jigtilo was a serial killer and real-life bogeyman who terrorized women and children throughout Soviet Russia, Ukraine, and Uzbekistan. Also, this is your no-eating warning for those of you with a delicate constitution. It's quite a, a history-heavy episode as well because I fell down many rabbit holes and decided you all have to suffer for it. Um, so lots of uh, 20th century European history. You're welcome. I mean, um, you know, I love the history ones, so. Yeah. Um, and yet this case is like so much more than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of had it kind of on like a reserve list in my head. Like, okay, it's just a generic serial killer. If one week one of us is ill or something and we don't really have time to do a proper week's worth of research. We'll just stick it in there. No, 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 no. You were wrong. I was very wrong. So <laughs> let's get into it. Alrighty. Uh, fair warning, we have done our very best with the pronunciations here, but uh, <laughs> kind of flying by the seat of our pants, so bear with us. Um, and as always, it is not spelled how it sounds. So just keep that in mind if you want to go Googling these things. You might need to look at our transcript and co copy and paste. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Andre Romanovic Chikatilo was born to a family of collective farmers in Yabloknoi, maybe, uh, a, which is a rural, I, I can say the, the Ukrainian town name, but I can't say rural properly. Yeah, so Yabloknoi was not a problem, but rural farming village was. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. What do you know? Great start. Off to a great start. Um, yeah, Yabloknoi, a rural farming village in eastern Soviet Ukraine. Uh, he was born on October 16th, 1936. Uh, now, life in Soviet Ukraine was pretty rough, as you might imagine. Um, Ukraine was known as the breadbasket of Europe because of its nutrient-rich soil and ideal climate, which made it perfect for wheat farming. Also, it was the champion of 20 questions in that it was both a breadbasket and larger than a breadbasket. You guys ever <laughs> use that as like the only... The, I, I, I just... Okay, little tangent no. here. I know we're starting early, but like, why is it? Because when I was a kid, when you played 20 questions, one of the questions people would always ask, is it larger than a bread basket? I never had seen a bread basket, so I never knew how to answer such a question. Yeah, also bread baskets vary in size. Like you could get a little one with like two pieces of bread in, or you could have a massive a one, one that's like, like full of bread. And yeah, so... So really, that is not a good question. It's not a good demarcation of size. But anyway, I digress, as per usual. Um, right, so the Soviet government saw private farming as a gateway to capitalism. Oh no. Uh, uh, because it was mostly tenant farming and the government had to pay for its grain, which they... Super didn't the like horror. No, having to pay a farmer for their produce—it's how just, awful. It's outrageous, really. 
like how could one even assume that is an okay practice? Um, and of course, Stalin argued that collectivism would free poor peasant farmers from economic servitude uh, under the farm owners known as kolkas. I feel like this episode would benefit from a video component of all of our like pronoun <laughs> pronouncing strange words and then the faces we make to try to figure out if we've said it right. <laughs> Um, we started off well with with your block noy. Yeah, downhill at rural, right away. Yeah, <laughs> right away. Back to Joseph Stalin's five year plan. Um, so we're going back. It's 1928. Uh, Stalin implemented a policy of agriculture collectivization. Right, so there's loads of different words for it. So agricultural collectivization, agricultural collectivism, yeah. collective farming. Basically, the ideology of collectivism was uh, implemented in yeah. their agricultural sector. Okay, so the goal of, of this policy was to increase grain production throughout the Union, uh, which in turn would increase food supplies to the growing urban areas, provide more grain for export and trade, as well as provide raw materials to power the uh, processing industries. Farmers were not paid, great, but they were allowed to cultivate a small patch of land for themselves. Essentially, they got to grow their own vegetable garden in exchange for their crops and hard work. So to implement this new policy, the Kolkas were either executed or they were deported to Siberia, which was actually really common throughout the Soviet era. So various sort of ethnic groups were forcibly relocated to different regions, um, kind partly in an attempt to quash rebellions. So, for example, Ukrainians and Moldovans were packed into cattle trucks and sent to Siberia where they had no idea how to survive because obviously the climate in Siberia is hellishly different to sort of the northern Caucasus, Caucasus, that bit of Eastern Europe, like Southeastern Europe. So, and it's also a way of like suppressing the traditional cultures and values mm -hmm. that were seen as like a threat to communism and collectivism. Needless to say, Stalin's five-year plan didn't work. Grain supply fell massively because there's a couple of like successive really bad harvests and because the harvested crops were collected to be redistributed by the state. So they were allowed their little vegetable patch, but they weren't allowed to keep any of their own crops. Mm -hmm. The crops were collected by, it was called a red train. So it was like these crop collectors would come and they would literally collect them in like a train of like cart. Mm -hmm. Um. And mass, starva mass starvation followed throughout the Soviet Union because Stalin wasn't very good at redistributing the crops. What a surprise. Who, who knew, right? Yeah. And Central and Eastern Ukraine were the worst affected areas um, because they were the suppliers and they got nothing back. Yeah. And the worst of this famine was in 1932 to 33 and is known as the Holodomor in Ukraine. And an estimated 3.5 million ethnic Ukrainians died in this two-year period. And it wasn't until 1940, which was 12 years after its implement implementation, that collective farming in the Soviet Union finally surpassed pre-collectivism production levels. Mm -hmm. And as you would expect, the death toll is very, very much contested. But it is estimated that as many as 12 million people died um, across the Soviet Union as a result of famines throughout the 1930s. But they say that two-year period was the worst. Mm -hmm. Ukraine was the worst hit. A lot of people. Yes. Um, so famines had happened before in Ukraine, but previously international campaigns had been held to raise money and aid for those affected. But in the 1930s, information was suppressed and the international community was not aware of the plight of uh, Ukrainian farmers. This also, you know, this is also taking place during the rise of fascism across Europe, the aftermath of the Great Depression and the buildup to the Second World War. So not a great time in Europe. Everyone has their own things going on. 
Everyone's busy. Um, yeah, that puts it lightly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> comparisons have been drawn between the Holodomor and the Irish potato famine uh, because it was an enforced famine. You know, food was being produced, but it was being confiscated and then redistributed to other parts of the Union. Uh, it is widely debated as to whether or not the Holodomor was genocide. Some countries, including Canada, Australia, Mexico, and multiple Eastern European countries, do recognize it as genocide against ethnic Ukrainians, but most countries uh, don't recognize it that way. The argument against it is that approximately 5.5 million people starved to death during 1932 to 1933, and only 3.5 million of those were Ukrainians, so it was not a specifically a targeted attack against ethnic Ukrainians. How can you say only when it's a majority? That is what I don't get, but that is... That's the argument. That is the argument, is that an estimated 5.5 million people died in this sort of two-year period, but because they weren't all Ukrainian, it wasn't genocide, but like you say, only <laughs> is firstly not a word to use when describing 3.5 million deaths. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't care. Even if you're comparing it to the fact that there's 7 billion people on this planet, only is still not a word to use uh -uh. when you talk about death tolls. So, we're not here to answer the question of genocide. <laughs> Whether you believe it to be genocide or not, the Holodomor was definitely a crime against humanity. It was horrendous and it caused devastation on a massive scale throughout the Soviet Union. And it's in the aftermath of this... Uh, into which Andrei Chikatilo was born. So, yeah, I would say horrendous time in Europe, yeah. really, at this this period. And one thing we see time and again throughout history in times of widespread famine and mass food shortages is cannibalism. Oh, boy. You were warned not to eat. <laughs> we, it's, all I'm gonna say it's funny because uh, we've also got another similarly themed episode coming up about this and uh, so we're oh yeah we're going our Halloween yeah extravaganza we're going full full grizzly for this uh, this little yeah extra programming gonna, bit <laughs> yeah we're gonna try not to be too graphic because one I can't stand it and I have a very strong stomach but this is my limit yeah um, bodies of the dead were just piled up on the roadside. They were oftentimes they weren't even buried. They or weren't buried for a while, mm -hmm. and people would literally go and cut up the bodies for food. Not only that, people would regularly go missing. And of course, a black market sprung up for human meat too. Oh. And it's easy for us to judge. It's very easy for us to judge if you're starving to death. Do what it takes. So children growing up in this era of Soviet rule were told, not just in Ukraine, but the whole Soviet Union, were told that if they saw a healthy-looking person, they were to run away from them because that was like the like a massive indicator that they were a cannibal because that was the only way they had gotten food. Yeah, to be well-fed and, and look like yeah. you're healthy. Everyone else was like eating grass and leaves yeah. to survive. So if a person looked healthy, they were probably a cannibal. And Chikatilo was told by his mother, Anna, that he had had an elder brother named Stepan, who at the age of four had been kidnapped and eaten by cannibals. Ugh. However, there's no record that Stepan ever, ever existed. There's like no birth or death records mm -hmm. for Stepan Chikatilo. And it's largely accepted that this was kind of like a cautionary story that Anna had made up to really drive home the danger. Quite extreme. Yeah. Yeah. But if it works, it knows? works, you know? Exactly. Um, and of course, this period of famine is immediately followed up by the Second World War. So there's even more widespread devastation and food shortages across Europe. <sighs> Just keeps getting worse. Yeah. Um, so 
Chikatilo's childhood was pretty horrendous. In 1941, his father Roman was conscripted into the Red Army to fight in the Second World War. In 1943, his younger sister Tatiana was born. Uh, now, even for those of us who aren't great at math, like me, um, uh, we still know that two years is far too long for sort of human gestational period or pregnancy, if, if you so choose. Um, and that is because Tatiana was only Chikatilo's half-sister. Um, now, it's an all-too-common horrific tactic for rape to be used as a weapon of war, uh, and the reason for that is twofold. First, uh, repeated rape and sexual assault wears away at a woman's strength, their resilience, uh, and their soul, who she is as a person, and eventually makes it easier. It makes it easy for the advancing soldiers to conquer an area or region. Um, and so the second reason is because it, quote, dilutes the ethnicity. Um, and it's actually another form of genocide. So, for instance, the Germans believed that they were ethnically superior to everyone else, and so by raping and impregnating those who they believed were ethnically inferior to them, they would eventually breed out the inferior races. Um, so uh, the small hut that the Chikatilo family lived in had only one room, and it is believed that Chikatilo witnessed his mother being repeatedly sexually assaulted by Nazi soldiers as a child. So Chikatilo witnessed other horrors of the Nazi occupation. Um, bombings, shootings, fires. The family had to hide in cellars, ditches, wooded areas. One night they were forced to watch as their hut was burned to the ground by soldiers. Mm. Uh, Chikatilo was also a chronic bedwetter. The family all slept in the same bed because, you know, it's a one-roomed hut. Mm -hmm. His mother would berate and beat him each time he wet the bed. School offered no reprieve either. Chikatilo was a studious child. Uh, according to his teachers, he was a good student, regularly praised for his schoolwork. But he was physically weak. As I assume most people were in that time. Yeah. Uh, he wore, like, really worn-out homemade clothes, frequently fainted from lack of food, because um, the Soviet Union was plagued with famines and food shortages in the post-war era, too, from, like, 45 to 48. Food shortages were so bad that Chikatilo claimed he had not eaten bread until he was 12 years old, even though he grew up in the breadbasket of Europe. He was shy, very short-sighted, uh, wore huge jam jar glasses, which along with his small, weak stature made him a target for bullies. Not only this, when his father was drafted into the Red Army, he was captured and was a prisoner of war. And this was seen as like a failure and shameful and an act of cowardice, Ugh. which I don't understand that. No. But this is another thing that made Chiquitillo a target for bullies. Um... Into his teen years, Chikatilo's torment continued. Uh, after the onset of puberty, he discovered that he was impotent and was unable to maintain an erection. And uh, we're not just throwing that in there for funsies. Like, it will become important later. Just bear with us. <laughs> in the second part, this will all become, like, we'll realize why it's so important, but also, why we know so much about Chikatilo, especially considering it was a Soviet, he lived during the Soviet um, Union. So, yeah. yeah, we'll get there. It's not just it's not just us giving like a shit ton of history facts and everything for fun. It's like there is a point to all. Yes, this. yeah. <laughs> um, Bear with us. Yeah. So, this um, sexual malfunction, if you will, obviously added to his awkwardness and. Um, uh, instilled a sense of self-hatred that he had already started to develop after all the years of bullying and humiliation at home. Um, however, during his teenage years, he developed an interest in the Communist Party. And like 
an actual interest, not a forced interest because, you know, people were scared of the Soviet secret police. He like actually was interested in communism. Um, And by the age of 15, he was chairman of the student communist party. At the age of 17, he had his first crush on a girl, a fellow student, also 17, but he was so shy and so worried about his impotence that he never asked her out. But later that year, he uh, jumped an 11-year-old girl, a friend of his sister's, and while she struggled and uh, wrestled to get away from him, he ejaculated. So uh, the child struggling to get away from him was the thing that, that got him going and turned him on. Not great. No. And again, this will become important later. Yes. It's not just scandalous details for funsies here. We're not just gossiping about this serial killer, guys. Don't worry. No. In 1954, Chikatilo graduated from school with good to excellent grades. And he was the only student in his year to actually finish school. Um, He applied to the Moscow State University, but was rejected. And he believed his application was tainted by his father's war record. But in actual fact, there were just other students who performed better in the entrance exams. <laughs> so he moved to the city of Kursk in Western Russia, uh, which is kind of near the Ukrainian-Russian border, where he worked as a laborer for a few months before enrolling in vocational college with the aim of becoming a telephone engineer. Uh, During his time in Kursk, he met a local woman and began his first serious relationship. She was two years younger than him, so 17 when they met. And the relationship lasted about 18 months before she broke it off. The couple did attempt sex on three occasions, but each time he was unable to maintain an erection. So, after completing his two-year vocational training... Chikatilo was transferred to the industrial city of Nishni Tagil in the Urals, which is about 17 miles east of the like virtual Europe-Asia border. A little bit of trivia for you there. <laughs> and is known for its steel and iron production. And whilst working there, he began a correspondence course in engineering with the Moscow Electrotechnical in- uh, Institute of communication and i think that's a bit like a distance learning type of thing yeah it's basically like online degree programs now but through the mail yeah um so in 1957 chikatilo was called up for compulsory military service he was first stationed with the border guards in central asia which is the now independent republics of kazakhstan kyrgyzstan Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. He was later reassigned to the KGB, which I see is spelled out, and I don't know how <laughs> in the fuck to say this, so we're just gonna... KGB, which stands I'll for... I'll give it a go. Com- Comitet... Comitet... Kosudarstvenoi Bez... So pasnosti. Yeah. Komitet Gosudar Stevenoi Bezopasnosti. Something like that. So he was reassigned to the KGB communications unit in Berlin. <laughs> As it will henceforth be known by its three little letters <laughs> and not its three long words. <laughs> Um, Now, (laughs) if anyone doesn't know, uh, the KGB were the Soviet secret police and uh, national security agency. The name translates to Committee for State Security. Now, that makes more sense. Komitat, committee. I can see that. I get that. Yeah. Um, So Chikatilo's service record was immaculate, and he was discharged at the end of his compulsory service in 1960. Just before his discharge, he joined the Communist Party. Uh, after leaving the military, Chikatilo returned to his parents' home in Yabloknoi, and he began a brief rela- relationship with a woman from the village. Um, now, again, the relationship lasted only three months, thanks to Chikatilo's inability to get it up, 
as the kids say. Um, and the straights say, I don't say very often. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess it's not a, a problem in your marriage. Not usually, no. <laughs> um, so the woman had asked her friends for advice, and as a result, the villagers had begun to gossip about Chikatilo and his impotence. Great. Which is what happens in, you know, every rural wheat-producing village. Obviously. I'm from one, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> Trust and believe. <laughs> Chikatilo was so ashamed that he attempted to hang himself, but the neighbors found him and saved his life. Uh, but in the Soviet Union, as with most places at the time, uh, suicide and mental health problems in general were seen as very shameful. Um, in the Soviet era, mental illness was essentially weaponized against people, um, which is really awful and not good. Yeah, so there were no proper or regulated mental health facilities. Um, the family were uh, shamed. Uh, so, you know, you've got the father's war record and, you know, supposed cowardice. And now Chikatilo's suicide attempt add it all together um so it made the family uh basically social outsiders in 1961 chikatilo found a job as a communications engineer near the russian city of rostov-on-don his sister tatiana moved to rostov when she finished her studies a few months later and their parents also relocated to the rostov oblast soon after do we need to explain what our oblast means it's kind of like a like a state or county type of thing it's like a region essentially okay. see i did not know that so that's good to explain yeah so it's basically like a province and so rostov on don was kind of the sort of main city uh -huh. in that in the the region so it's the rostov oblast tatiana lived with her brother for a few months but she soon met a local man and the two got married she moved in with her in-laws but when she moved out, she resolved to help her brother get over his shyness and find a wife. Aww. She, she set him up with a few different friends of hers, including one who was also called Tatiana. But none of these relationships worked out. That was until 1963, when she set him up with a friend of hers called Feodosia, uh, who was actually known as Faina. Uh, within a month of being set up by Tatiana, the couple got married. Oh. Um, and Chikatilo, after he was arrested, kind of referred to it as a bit of a f arranged marriage. Uh -huh. And I'm like, at this point, you can't be choosy, mate. True story. Because unlike the women he dated before, Fina actually understood his impotence. And it seemed that she wasn't that bothered by it in the grand scheme of things. The couple did manage to have two children, though. Um, the family settled down into like a normal family life from the outside, you know, as with almost all serial killers. Nobody had any idea what was about to happen. Uh, love it. The classic 48 hours dateline head headline. Nobody knew. Yeah. What normal was family come. man. Um. So throughout the late 1960s, Chikatilo completed a second correspondence degree, this time in Russian literature and language, and he completed his degree in 1970. A year later, he took up his first teaching post at a school in the mining city of, dear God, bear with me, Novoshaktinsk. Novoshaktinsk. Novoshaktinsk in the Rostov region. Um, so... Although Chikatilo was knowledgeable about his subject, he wasn't particularly good at teaching. He was regularly mocked by his students, and he failed to maintain control over his class or discipline his students in any way. Great. Love that in a teacher. Um, yeah. Now, it was at this school in Novoshaktinsk that Chikatilo committed his first known sexual assault on a student. Um. In 1973, while at a swimming pool, he swam up to a 15-year-old student and groped her breasts. And as with uh, the young girl in his village, he 
ejaculated as this girl struggled to get away from him. Um, just months later, he locked another student in a classroom and sexually assaulted them. Uh, but complaints were dismissed by the school and in some cases by parents too. Chikatilo was also observed by other teachers fondling himself while watching female students, and on uh, more than one occasion, he let himself into the female dormitory to watch them undressing. Great. Um, so, eventually, the school could no longer ignore the complaints against Chikatilo, and in January 1974, he was told to leave or he would be fired. So, he left, and then immediately took up another teaching job at another school in uh, Novoshaktinsk. He managed to hold on to this second teaching job for four years until staff cutbacks in September 1978, so I made redundant, and we don't know what he got up to in that time. Great. Um, yeah. But the same month, he found another teaching job in the nearby coal mining city of Shakti. And the family moved there. And it was in Shakti, just months after moving there, that Chikatilo committed his first murder. On December 22nd, 1978, Chikatilo lured nine-year-old Yelena Zakatonova uh, to a small second house that he had secretly purchased uh, in Shakti as she was walking home from an ice skating rink. Uh, first, he attempted to rape her, but then couldn't get an erection. So instead, he stabbed her repeatedly in the stomach. Somehow she survived this. And so he then decided to strangle her until she passed out then carried her body to the Grishevka River, which was like at the end of the street, very convenient for him, and threw her into the icy water. And some reports claim that she was actually still alive, just unconscious, so she actually drowned. And her body was found two days later on Christmas Eve. So there were numerous pieces of evidence which pointed to Chikatilo. There was blood in the snow outside his second home, and he had been seen by neighbors in and around the property on the day Yelena disappeared. Another witness reported seeing a man matching Chikatilo's description at a bus stop with the young girl. Uh, Yelena's backpack was found on the riverbank at the end of the street, indicating that she had been placed in the river there. Uh, now, despite all this evidence pointing towards Chikatilo, he was not a suspect. Because, after all, he was a regular family man, and he obviously couldn't have been a murderer. I have a feeling we're going to be saying that a lot with this guy. Yeah. Um, instead, 25-year-old laborer Alexander Kravchenko was arrested. Kravchenko already had a conviction for the rape and murder of a different teenage girl. Uh, Kravchenko actually had pretty watertight alibi or so it seemed he was at home with his wife and a friend of his wife um, on the night that Elena was killed and the neighbours corroborated this so that's at least four people Yeah, the the two women, who, his wife, his wife's friend and the, the, neighbor, the couple who lived next door however this was the Soviet Union and the police had already decided that Kravchenko was the murderer they just needed to twist the evidence to prove this <laughs> Very, very common in the Soviet Union. Uh, so they threatened Kravchenko's wife with being uh, arrested as an accomplice to murder and her friend with perjury. And so both women were coerced into changing their statements to say that they'd been at home and that Kravchenko hadn't returned until late that night. And when confronted with these new statements from his wife and her friend, Kravchenko confessed to Yelena's murder. Also, side point, in the Soviet Union, they can hold, they could hold someone for up to 10 days before they arrested yeah. them. Jesus. Whereas, I don't know what it, I think it's like, is it 48 hours in the UK? I can't remember, or 72. Yeah. And after that, you have to apply for extension, like, in 24-hour increments. Yeah. Um, whereas they had 10 days. So after 10 days of being tortured, because that's what happened, 10 days of being tortured, you... You'd confess to anything to make it stop, wouldn't oh, you? Oh, yeah. Of course. 
Um, however, at his trial in 1979, Kravchenko retracted his confession and claimed that it was un- obtained under extreme duress, which, to be fair to him, it was, <laughs> as we've just said. It was the one of the most common tactics of Soviet law enforcement. Uh, but he was found guilty and sentenced to death. But a year later, in 1980, this was commuted to 15 years in prison by the Supreme Court. And that was actually the longest possible sentence at the time for any crime was 15 years. Uh, but Yelena's family and the local community were not happy with this sentence. Um, and uh, after pressure from the family, Kravchenko was retried and once again found guilty and sentenced to death. So, a shorter sentence, but a more extreme one. Yeah. Um, uh, in July 1983, he was executed by firing squad. So, Chikatilo had gotten away with murder. Quite impressively, as well. Yeah, especially when all the evidence did point to him as yeah. well. Um. So he continued to teach in Shakti until 1981 when he was fired after, you guessed it, numerous complaints of sexual assaults and molestation. He managed to get a job as a supply clerk at a factory in the city of Rostov-on-Don, which produced uh, construction materials. And this job required him to travel all over the Soviet Union, visiting other factories to purchase raw materials or to fulfill production quotas and to negotiate contracts. Um, Chikatilo would later say that following Yelena's murder, he realized he could only achieve orgasm from stabbing women and children to death. But because he's such a good guy, he resisted these urges for as long as possible, often cutting short business trips to return home rather than to go looking for victims. How sweet. I just have no words for that. Like, no, that's not a defense. No, you are not a good guy. No, this was until September 3rd, 1981. This is nearly three years after the first murder, after Yelena's mm-hmm. murder. He convinced 17 year old Larissa Tchenko to accompany him to the forest. Uh, by the River Don, on the pretext of vodka and relaxing. Is that like Netflix and chill? Vodka and relax? Yeah, I think that. <laughs> yep, that's the uh, the Soviet version of it. <laughs> so, Larissa was actually quite sexually experienced despite being only 17, and she allegedly was known for exchanging sexual favors for alcohol and or food, which was actually quite common during Soviet times because people were so poor, they were starving, so they turned to sex work so that they could eat or so that they could drink and just forget about the horrendous life. The conditions in which they lived. Yeah, reality. That was the word I was looking for. So Larissa followed Chiquitillo out into the forest, expecting to, you know, have sex, whatever, for alcohol, maybe a bit of food. But as we all know, Chikatilo was impotent, so he couldn't get it up. And Larissa just decided she wasn't really into it. He started getting aggressive and she's like, nah, I'm out of here, it's not worth it. You know, consent, it's really fucking important. Um, so Chikatilo decided to kill her, shoved mud into her mouth, beat her to death. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, he just didn't happen to have a knife or any kind of weapon on him, so... He mutilated her by biting her and tearing skin from her body. Ugh. Yeah. Just, it's horrific. Yeah. And the way it's kind of defended is, oh, well, I didn't have a knife, so I had to do it with my teeth. Like, like, no, no. You, just, you didn't have to do any of that. You didn't have to do anything with the knife. You didn't have to sh- beat her to death. You didn't have to sh- shove mud in her mouth or, you know, try to force you her to have sex have to- with you. Like... No. You didn't have to go into the forest in the first place, goddammit. Just sit down no. and shut up. Just take a long walk off a sharp pier. Yes. Um, yeah. 
He covered her body with leaves, twigs and shredded newspapers and she was found the following day. Uh, his third victim came just nine months later. He was traveling for work, um, you know, as, as he had to do for this job. And one day he met 13-year-old uh, Loibov Biryuk, possibly is how you say it, but possibly not. This one we have no clue on. Um, so he met her near a bus stop in a small village in rural Rostov on June 12th, 1982. Uh, she was on her way home from the shops. He followed her until they were out of uh, view of the main road, and he dragged her into a wooded area and attempted to rape her. But when he couldn't get an erection, he killed her instead. Uh, her body wasn't found until June 27th. She had been beaten and stabbed repeatedly, but the medical examiner also found flashes to her eye sockets. And this would become uh, Chikatilo's trademark for lack of a better word his like signature um so usually if a killer mutilates a victim's eyes it's because they know them personally in some way but for many many years it was wrongly believed that a dead person's eyes captured the image of the last thing that they saw now obviously we know that's not how it works now we know <laughs> But at the time, yeah, we know now. Yeah, but at the time, it was believed that uh, a murder victim's eyes held the image of their murderer, which would be very helpful if if eyes did that. Yeah. Um. So this was actually done during the hunt for Jack the Ripper in Victorian London, almost a hundred years earlier. They photographed uh, the women's eyes in the hopes of developing a picture of the killer uh, from those photographs. So. Quite a long-held belief, but unfortunately, not accurate. Now is probably a good time to talk about the attitude towards murder and serial killers in the Soviet Union. Just because this is another rabbit hole I <laughs> fell down. As I understand it, the Soviets based their ideology on Marxist criminology. Yeah, not going to dress this up. I got this from Wikipedia. <laughs> because, right. I saw someone on in a Facebook group the other day like complaining about people using Wikipedia to research for podcasts. Like, first off, okay, if you're just going to recite the Wikipedia page, that's boring. Yeah. But it's a brilliant jumping off point for research for anything. Yeah. Don't be hating on Wikipedia. No, free knowledge is good knowledge. Also, donate to Wikipedia if you have the means. Uh, they do great work and they are donation funded yeah so according to interwebs law was perceived not as a means of determining individual guilt but as part of a broader class struggle so based on this people could be convicted even if they hadn't committed an actual crime so even if there's no evidence a crime has been committed if these people rightly or wrongly were believed to belong to a vaguely defined uh, like a bourgeois class mm -hmm. um, or if their conviction would be like broadly beneficial to the government in any way they could be arrested and charged so they were very sort of free and loose with what constituted a crime right but yeah According to Western experts, crime levels were actually really low in the Soviet Union compared to the USA and Western Europe. And this is because there's like a massive police presence and low levels of drug use mm -hmm. because the borders are so tightly controlled. However, corruption and bribery were quite common as a result of like the scarcity of goods and low wages and everything. Because being in law enforcement was not that well paid there was actually not a lot of benefit to being in the to being in law enforcement in the soviet union so i suppose like white collar crime bribery corruption things like that were common mm -hmm. 
but overall crime was quite low. low. I think. So says the internet. Um, the Soviet Union had few prisons, but many prison and labor camps because they believed in a system of corrective labor rather than traditional prison sentencing. Recidivism rates were quite low in the Soviet Union, and former inmates and Western experts tend to agree that conditions in the camps were generally horrendous, with uh, harsh conditions and prisoners subjected to physical and sexual abuses. It was accepted that murder happened in the Soviet Union, uh, but serial murder was regarded as a Western capitalist construct. So, this refusal to admit that serial killers existed massively hampered the investigations into these murders because they were never linked, and the police thought that they were looking for individual killers. So the, the Soviet Union was supposedly, or like communist countries were supposedly paradise. Yeah. Um, and the official line was, there is no murder in paradise. So, But there yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, so after murdering his third victim, Lyubov Biryuk, Chikatilo killed a further five young people between July and September 1982. He refined his method. I mean, this is almost a spree at this yeah. point. Um, But then he slows down again, so. He would typically prey on... Children, runaways, young sex workers, or homeless homeless youths. Uh, if they were so lonely-looking children, or looked like they didn't have many friends, or were a bit geeky, uh, he would try and befriend and impress them by pretending to be a stamp collector or coin collector. You know, things like that that apparently were you all know, the things that lonely children yes. liked. Uh, I mean, actually. Yeah. As a lonely child in my previous years, I also was a stamp collector, so I understand the appeal. <laughs> and he would lure them away. If they were sex workers or homeless, he would try and entice them with the promise of food or alcohol. Uh, one thing he also pretended was that he had bubblegum because it was difficult to get in the Soviet Union. And so kids, that was amazing because it's this really rare foreign food. And then when he had them alone, usually in a wooded area, he would assault them, beat them, and then either strangle or stab them to death and would then mutilate their eyes after they had died. We don't want to get any more graphic on that. So that is basically how, that is his method that he used. And during these two months, his victims were Lyubov Volobayeva, who's 14, Oleg Posideyev, who was 9, Olga Kuprina, 16, Irina Karabelnikova, who's 18, and Sergei Kuzmin, who's 15. And the last three, Olga, Irina, and Sergei were all runaways. And they definitely fall into the awful, less dead category. Yeah. And uh, if you think that here in the Western world, we have a pretty awful attitude towards the so-called less dead, uh, the Soviet Union was even worse. So here in the UK and um, in the USA, the attitudes to crimes committed against sex workers and homeless people were, and in some places still are, awful um, uh, with the sort of uh, they deserved it kind of attitude prevailing. And, and investigations never took priority. Most weren't even taken seriously. No, in the UK, that debate really opened up in the late 70s with um, the crimes of the Yorkshire mm -hmm. Ripper was bad over here but Us. in the soviet union uh it was worse um as far as the authorities were concerned homeless people just didn't exist uh for example 
For the 1980 Olympics, homeless people and others who were considered undesirable were rounded up and transported 101 kilometers, so they were beyond the border of the Moscow, uh, Moscow Oblast, so that they wouldn't be seen by the outside world and tarnish the city's image. So, consequently, when homeless people and members of other vulnerable groups uh, disappeared, sadly, nobody cared because as far as the authorities were concerned, they didn't exist. It wasn't a problem. Nothing to see here. Move along. Um, Chikatilo's final victim of 1982 was 10-year-old Olga Stalmachanok, possibly. Again, uh, look at the transcript if you want to know spellings or look at Wikipedia. <laughs> um, uh, whom he met on a bus in Novoshaktinsk. God, that one's going to kill me. Um, when she was on her way home after a piano lesson on December 11th. He pers persuaded her to leave the bus with him, and he lured her to a field on the outskirts of the city where he stabbed her 50 times and mutilated her body. And this is where we're going to pick up next week because we just cannot fit everything into one episode. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so thank you so much for listening. But if you can't wait until next week to hear us chat shit about crime and anything Stuff. else, really, you're in luck because we are having a Halloween spooktacular extravaganza. Really going out all out on the word extravaganza because <laughs> it's a fun word. It's a fun it is. word. It's good And. We will have extra episodes for all of you in the run-up to Halloween, so make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast app you're using because we will be back tomorrow. Yes. You right. can't tomorrow. get rid of us. <laughs> yes. Um, tomorrow with some spooky Halloween crime stuff for yes. you. Very exciting. So we will see you all then. Lots of stuff. So thank you so much for listening, and uh, yeah, come back tomorrow. Bye. Bye.